So Randy, thank you for opening and leading, uh, opening our worship today. And I'm sorry this morning for not mentioning uh, that today or this weekend is Thanksgiving weekend, so apologies on that front. Um, but we've got an awful lot to be thankful for in our fellowship, haven't we? And it's been an absolute joy to have been able to have seen uh, those, uh, tes- or to hear the testimonies and then to see uh, those that were baptized this morning. And uh, we do indeed pray um, uh, for them. But again, we've got so much to be thankful for. Now, <clears throat> I want to tell you a little story about a friend of mine. His name was, uh, uh, was Mike, Mike Taylor. And Mike uh, bought the house next door to the house that my parents and I and my brother lived in. Uh, Mike, um, <clears throat> uh, Mike bought this house. It was old, probably uh, three, four hundred, could have been older than that, okay? And uh, the walls on the house were sort of this thick, okay, because the houses in the little villages in Somerset in England are built like that. You know, England's an old country. You come to Canada, and, and uh, if something's 50 years old, you, it's sort of like an antique, really. But the thing is that this house was, was ancient, and there was something about it that just said it was uh, quite special in some respects. And Mike and his wife and their two children enjoyed uh, several years, I think three or four years, uh, living there and uh, as often happens to men, his wife pestered him about the decoration. It needed to be redecorated. And so Mike was tasked with the uh, responsibility of uh, decorating. And uh, he started and was working his way through and finally got to the room, the bedroom upstairs uh, that the two children were sharing. And he begins to pull off the old wallpaper. And as he's doing it, he's, he's, he's doing a good job. And then suddenly, where his paper scrape goes he sees the edge and outline of something interesting. And so he continues to soak the wallpaper and continues with his paper scrape to get the, uh, the old paper off. And before him, slowly but surely, as he's scraping it, he sees a beautiful mural of the Ten Commandments on the wall of the house. Now, before he, before he could say anything, his wife decided to contact the local museum in Taunton in Somerset Uh, because it looked very interesting, and she thought they ought to at least know about it. Big mistake, okay? (laughs) So uh, one of these um, intelligent types from the museum came. (laughs) We've all met them, haven't we? (laughs) And uh, they took one look at it and slapped a preservation order on the bedroom, which meant they couldn't do anything in terms of decorating or anything before they decided whether they would try and remove at this mural because it was so old. It was probably 400 years old. It was beautiful. And I went to, to see it. Uh, Mike invited me around. We were, he, was, he was very dis- disappointed over the fact that uh, the, the guy from the, the, the council had come or from the museum had come and said that there was nothing that they could do. But it really was interesting. Then I thought to myself, could you imagine waking up in the morning and the first thing you see is the Ten Commandments. And when you come to go to bed at night, the last thing you see is the Ten Commandments. And uh, maybe your wife would underline certain commandments just to make sure that you'd spotted which uh, ones you had to take notice of. And then as I began to think of uh, some of the things that we've been talking about, I was very moved with uh, Charles Price recently when he made the point about uh, the man who had been in prison for theft, uh, stealing things and so on. And when he came out and he went to a church and he saw on the wall beside it, again, the Ten Commandments, and instead of it saying, thou shalt not steal, it became a promise. And the promise was, thou shalt not steal. 
And I actually thought that was a tremendous blessing to be able to think about it uh, in that way, the Ten Commandments. And so when you come across these uh, um, uh, commandments from now on, think about the promise that God has given to us. Because when he works in us, when, he, uh, when his Holy Spirit moves within our hearts and lives, our attitude changes and our relationship with God changes. It becomes rich and it becomes um, such a blessing to us. And so this morning we had six people who were baptized and it was a joy to be able to share with them in that service and to hear their testimonies and to talk to them. It's been a joy for me to get to know them over the period of the uh, baptismal classes that we've held. Uh, It's been interesting to see uh, the way that um, God works differently in different lives. And so this morning I think you could determine for yourself that you're not outside of God's ability to reach you, because you heard everything this morning. I mean, all the Ten Commandments, I think, you know, broken. Uh, People's lives that were destroyed by the behavior of other people, or damaged severely. And yet God comes in and he graciously picks up the pieces, all the broken pieces, and puts us back together. And we see tremendous blessing that comes into our life as he does that and so it's an exciting thing so six people have demonstrated in their baptism this morning something which is incredibly important in the christian life and it's a word as i've said so often that we don't want to talk about very often our society at large doesn't want to talk about it the media doesn't want to talk about it schools don't want to talk about it young people don't want to talk about it children and families don't want to talk about it husbands and wives don't want to talk about it and the word that we're talking about is the word obedience it's become a word that we don't want to talk because we don't like the idea of us having to be uh, submissive, be obedient to somebody, to anybody in fact. And our society has created a system now where children are right all the time. (laughs) Uh, You can't tell anybody off. You can't suggest that there's a different way of doing things. You discover that in politics, well, everybody's right. Everything's happening all at the same time. And we discover that there is this quantum shift that has taken place. And yet, Matthew 16, sorry, uh, 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 Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So even as we think about those that were baptized this morning, we recognize that even in that commandment that Jesus gave to be baptized, he talks about the commandments. He tells us as a church to be able to teach people how to live. Not that we want to have them live the way that we want so we don't create rules and we don't create laws for Norwich Baptist Church. I always get worried when we talk about the doctrine of the church and you hear certain churches that have certain doctrinal uh, viewpoints. But what I do recognize very clearly is that we need to learn God's word. We need to be able to apply God's word into our lives. But of course, we need to be able to encourage people and we need to be able to teach them. So Dennis, Cassidy, Monique, Alec, Alex, uh, Jeremiah, and Julia have all come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they have recognized that Jesus died to satisfy his Father's requirements toward us. Because we need to be made right with God, and Jesus has done that for us. 
It's the death of Jesus Christ that has justified those six people. And I pray most of us, if not all of us here this evening. The sin that separates us from God has been put right, or rather it's been dealt with through Jesus Christ. Our salvation is secure through Jesus Christ as the words that we have read, that Randy read to us, has explained. And the thing is, is that we don't have to visit this situation ever again. It's done. It's been done in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. A line has been drawn under it. Yes, we continue to sin. But sin in our life has been dealt with. And of course, as believers in the Lord Jesus, we want to live a life worthy of the calling that we have. We don't want to allow sin to be the dominating factor in our life. And so we're grateful to God who deals with this and looks into our hearts and into our lives. And he gives us the encouragement through the Holy Spirit living within us to be able to live the life that he would have us to live. You see, there had to be a death to deal with the sin problem that each of us has. And as we buried them in the water this morning, that told us that they had died, and as Randy has prayed already, that they have died to their old life. And as they're raised up out of the water, we discover that they are raised to a new life. That's the picture that we have, and that's what we understand. Raised to a new life in Jesus Christ. So we discover, as we read in this section of Scripture, both from Matthew 28 and then as we've read here this evening, let's pop these lights on a minute. As we've read here in, uh, in 1 John 5, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Just let that sentence sink in for a moment. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And remember, it's the object of our faith. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the object of our faith is Jesus himself. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now briefly this evening, I want us to um, just consider the concept of obedience but obedience, as the scripture points out, which is not burdensome. So when my friend Mike saw the Ten Commandments written on the wall, Mike wasn't a believer. He was brought up uh, as a Catholic. And he said, all this does is remind me of the terrible days that I had growing up at Catholic school. And he reminded, just simply reminded him of the fact that he was told all the time, this is how you have to live your life. But never once did anybody explain how we're able to keep the commandments. Because it is only through that relationship with Jesus Christ, our relationship with God, that we are ever able to live 
in a way that is pleasing to God. Too many people today avoid um, looking into the claims of Jesus Christ, into the claims that he has made, and they continue to live a life which is opposed diametrically to all that the Christian gospel stands for. And essentially, when it boils down to it, you discover that the one thing, and that came out in a number of the testimonies that we had this morning, the one thing that keeps rearing its head, if you like, is the fact that they do not want to be in bondage to anybody. They don't want to be a slave to anybody. They want to be able to live their lives in the way that they want to live their lives. They don't like the idea of someone looking over their shoulder. They don't like the idea of being told how to live our lives. But I'm telling you now that if we're not given instruction in our lives generally, we discover that we soon run into problems. If a child doesn't know that a car is dangerous on the road, when the child runs out of the front door and it runs onto the road, it will be hurt. Because the rule says you don't go on the road. And we discover that in our Christian lives, we have to remember that God is graciously speaking to us and his commandments are given to us for a reason because he wants us not just to live a life, but to live the best life that we can in Jesus Christ. To live a happy life, to live a fulfilled life. And so people, when they begin to consider the claims of the Christian life, and I get this quite often, people will say to me, but I'm just not interested in the rules and the regulations. And they'll say something like this. Doesn't Ephesians 6, 6 tell us that we have to be slaves to Christ? Slavery should be outlawed, and yet there are still places in the world where there are slaves. But I'm not going to become a slave. Who wants to become a slave? The concept is wrong. And doesn't Colossians 3.24 tell us that we're to serve Christ? I don't want to serve anyone. This is my life. I'm going to live it how I want to, in the way that I want to, doing the things that I want to. I'm not interested in being a servant. Certainly not a slave. And then doesn't 1 Peter 2.16 say that we have to be bond servants to Christ and I'm not entirely sure what a bond servant is but it sounds like a lack of freedom to me it sounds a little bit like slavery to me I don't want to be bound to anybody this is my life I'm going to live it how I want to live it I'm going to do what I want to do who wants to live as a slave So often people arrive at their own conclusions without ever investigating the truth of the gospel. They make assumptions. In fact, quite often we make assumptions about all sorts of things in life. It's amazing some of the things that you read on uh, social media, for example, about the assumptions that are made about the Christian life, about what it is to be a believer. And again, one of the assumptions that comes through is that it's a life of drudgery and it's a life of misery. And that's never what it's intended to be. And the scriptures that we have read here say, not burdensome, but with joy. But people make assumptions. You see, the reality is, is that they're not even interested in finding out the truth. They just make statements. They just make conclusions. 
Do they come along and turn to God's word and actually see what God's word has to say? Very rarely. Do they talk to somebody else who is a believer, someone who is a Christian, and ask them, well, you know, what, what, what is this all about? What does it really mean to be a Christian? Is, is it being a slave? And we could say yes. But we could also say that when we're slaves to Jesus, it's the greatest blessing that we can ever have. Because he's the greatest master we can ever have. Because he loves us so much that he was prepared to go to the cross for us. He shed his blood for us. Because he loves us and he deals with our sin. So of course, uh, talking about the truth brings us on to the fact that Satan's very language, John 8, 44 tells us, his very tongue is deceit. Because he doesn't want the truth to come out. He doesn't want people to know that there is indeed freedom in Jesus Christ. He doesn't want people to know that we can have a life of great satisfaction and depth that we could never ever imagine. That we can have meaning to our life. And didn't that come through in the testimonies this morning? That suddenly my life had meaning. Dennis, for decades, struggled. A war of attrition. And he suddenly talks about freedom in Jesus and all the decades pushed aside. Satan tells lies. I've told you this before. The only time he ever tells the truth is when we stand before God in judgment. And then he tells the truth about us. Not difficult, is it? God, you don't want this person. You should see the things I know. But Jesus comes in as our advocate and says, yes, that's all true. But I know this person. I've died for this person. I've taken their sin. This person is mine. And we discover that the sin issue has been dealt with. But Satan likes to tell listen 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 to this he tells lies romans 1 24 and 25 always get uneasy when we turn to romans chapter 1 don't we because it's the chapter that tells us so much about what's going on in the world and you know what it's all correct of course people don't want to hear it there are sections in romans chapter 1 which uh, apparently cause offense and yet the bible now is being described as an offensive book and so on but romans 1 24 25 says therefore god also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged, wait for it, it's beautiful, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed, amen. So notice the wording very carefully there. It doesn't say lies. It says the lie. The lie. So what is the lie that is being spoken of here. Well, Satan is a liar. We've said that. Every word that comes out of his mouth is deceit. And people listen. And lives are destroyed because people listen to the lies that he has to say. And he throws lies towards us. He promises us the earth and he delivers nothing. Perhaps a fleeting moment of pleasure. But then suddenly sadness comes. Then pain comes and regret comes. 
And you look back and you wish with all your heart you could turn the clock back on your life. And if you could do, you'd do everything differently. But you know, the amazing thing about coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is that that is in effect what God does for us. Because whilst we might be concerned about the past, we might remember the sins of the past. We won't remember the things that went horribly wrong, terribly wrong, the things that we deliberately did. Yes, the things that other people did to us. But God graciously says, I choose not to remember. And that means that because God doesn't remember the past, our futures are different. We're changed. And so I think we're the only people in this world that are able to say that we can change the past. And that change takes place through God graciously working in our lives. And he changes things. And it's a blessing. But Satan tells lies. So what is the lie? The lie that is spoken of? Well, Satan first spoke it to Eve, Genesis 3.5, I think, uh, or 3.15 maybe. And it was this. He said, he says to Eve, he says, you shall be as God if you eat this apple. You see, the lie is the idea that men and women are their own God. And therefore can do whatever they want. Because if they're God, they can do whatever they want. And so that's the lie that Satan peddles. And he's peddling this lie throughout the whole of our society. And we're seeing it appearing in the lives of people all over our communities, our countries, our provinces, every level of government. And we discover that the desire to better themselves by their own human effort is driven by the lie that we're taught or that Satan gives to us. You shall be as God. This is the way society works and functions today. Our children are told it at school all the time. You can be as God. Well, Freddie, if that's the way you think it should be, well, we can arrange it that way. If you feel this is how you want to live your life, then that's fine. And we can't tell you anything. And now we have teachers that are afraid to talk about general morality to children because they're afraid of what will be said and what will be passed on. And we discover that the whole of our society is changing at a rate which is so rapid we can't even keep up with it ourselves. But we as believers are given a great privilege because we have God's Word. And in God's Word we're warned, we're told that all these things will happen and come to pass. And we discover very clearly that the Scriptures explain how to live our lives, even in the days in which we live. Because God's word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It does not change. And for you, God's word doesn't change. You don't need to come and have a big black pen and cross out all the things you don't like anymore. And yet, that's the way the world functions. And we discover that people are quite prepared to do exactly that. And the Apostle John comes along and he writes as the Holy Spirit is working within him. As the Holy Spirit moves his hand and he writes in these verses, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Have you ever noticed how serious those words are before? This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. 
And then the verse goes on and says, and his commandments are not burdensome. So we've got a wonderful promise already that is contained there. You see, what John is saying is, is this. He says, don't just obey, but joyfully obey. Don't just serve, but joyfully serve. Don't just be a slave, but be a happy slave. Do you realize that everything in creation obeys God? Your dog obeys God. Have you ever thought about that? Your cat obeys God. Your goldfish obeys God. But there's one in creation who doesn't obey God. Who is it? It's us. Man does not want to obey God's will in anything. Psalm 148 tells us that fire and hail and snow and clouds, stormy wind, all obey his word. And if you turn to the book of Jonah, we see lots of things that obey the word of God. You see the wind and the waves again obeying God. Jonah's on a boat, sailing along. He's got his fishing rod or whatever it is that he's doing over the side of the boat. And suddenly the wind and the waves pick up and the boat is tossed around. And Jonah knows the reason. Because God told Jonah to go that way, and Jonah went that way. And I know that tonight there are some of us here that can relate exactly to that. You've been told that if you do this, it's going to end up really badly, and so you go ahead and do it. And we discover very quickly that it is mankind who doesn't want to obey God. So the wind and the waves, even the fish obeys God's command, but Jonah, and that's a different story, God tells him to go in a direction and he chooses the other direction. Even a plant and a little worm obey God, but Jonah stubbornly wants his own way. And it is tragic when people, men and women, deliberately disobey God but this is how our society is going. This is how our society operates. It's almost as if God said that we won't do it. The Bible says this, so we won't do it. We're diametrically opposed to God. New legislation that comes in already in this country has described God's word as myths and fairy tales. You might as well read Jack and the Beanstalk as far as the government are concerned. And you notice how even now, uh, when new legislation comes up, there's almost nobody in the federal government who will make a stand and be prepared to put their head above the parapet and say, actually, this law is wrong. Because people are afraid. Uh, the group of people who decide what's popular for the rest of us have decided that God's word is not popular. And of course, for mankind... It's not, because it requires obedience, and we don't want to be obedient. And so it's not brought to the forefront. But I want to say to you this evening, God is gracious, isn't he? And he's so kind. Have you noticed it in your life? It's important to note 
that all of us hear. And I've thought long and hard about this. But all of us here this evening do have the opportunity to, to believe and to be saved. All of us. There is no reason that any of us here, according to God's word, this evening should have to live our lives separated from God. And there is certainly no reason that any of us here should have to die without God with us and leading us into his kingdom. We don't know how long our life's going to be. You know, I've said it before, we all know when we were born. Well, I hope all of us here know when we were born. Some of us don't like to remember uh, the year part. And just in case we forget, the government have very kindly issued us all with birth certificates. It's got the date written on there. You can try and change it, but it won't help. <laughs> I was in a queue once going into, uh, uh, I think it was China or somewhere. No, no, it doesn't matter anyway. Two ladies in front, and uh, they were talking to each other. And uh, one of them said, oh, I've got a new passport. And so the other friend, as you quite often do, oh, let me have a look at the picture. So she passes it over, and the other friend looks at it and says, where did you get that picture from? <laughs> and uh, the lady whose passport it was, she said, well, I, I know it's about 10 years out of date, but the vicar is very flexible back home, and he signed the back of the photograph because she didn't want a picture that showed the real her. How interesting. How very interesting. But we know our birth date, but we don't know our death date. We can try and orchestrate it, but we don't. But God is so gracious, he's so kind. And it's interesting when you look through the scriptures, let's take the prophet uh, Ezekiel. Now if you're reading through our Bible reading plan, you'll know that Ezekiel is quite a long uh, uh, section of scripture to get through and you might be thinking to yourself, well, whatever would you want, you know, what are we going to learn from Ezekiel? Well, it's fascinating. I mean, first of all, Ezekiel was a strange prophet. He lay on his left side for 390 days, I think it was. And then, and then God said, now lie on your right side for 50 days. Sounds terrible, but Ezekiel was obedient to God and he kept the commandments that God gave and there was a reason for everything that he was told. And then suddenly we get this verse in Ezekiel 33 verse 11 and it says this, God has no delight in judging the lost. God has no delight in judging the lost. And then the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then again in Acts 17 verse 30, Paul reminds us that God commands all men everywhere to repent. All women everywhere to repent. You see, it's a commandment of God, and so we should all repent and turn to him. Have you done that? Have you actually considered that this is one of the commands which shouldn't be burdensome? Revelation 22, 14 and 15 confirms it all to us. Blessed are those who do his commandments. Notice the wording, do his commandments. That means to repent. That they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city, but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and wait for it, and whoever loves and practices a lie. 
You see, disobedience to God's will is absolutely tragic. And the consequences are tragic. But friends, so too is reluctance. So too is grudging obedience. And in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul was writing about giving. He's writing about tithing. But what he says here also absolutely applies to our lives as believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And so this evening, as we have witnessed the testimony of obedience by six people here in this church tent, here in this tank of water, Some of you watching have also heard the Lord speaking to you and prompting you to be baptized. And you're fighting the commandment. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to do it. Even though it's a clear commandment of Scripture to repent first and to be baptized. And you're fighting against being united with Jesus Christ, including in his death and burial and resurrection. But even more important, you are resisting the call to obey his commandment to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ, to repent of your sin. Yes, there are times when you feel it's really close. Maybe your mum has spoken to you and has challenged you about where you stand before God. There are things that she sees in your life that need to be changed. And that was something that my mum was very concerned about for me. And she would talk to me. And I tell you what, as a son particularly, there's nothing more convicting than your mother putting you on the spot. And reminding you what God has to say in his wonderful word. About how we should live our lives because he wants us to have happy lives. He wants us to have joyful lives. Even when things are going badly for us, when we perhaps feel that we're facing difficulties and trials, the scriptures still tell us that we are able to rejoice in those trials and in those difficulties. Paul and Silas have been given a jolly good beating, but they still sang songs and hymns and praised God. And there are times when the cares of this world come flooding in. And you turn to sin. And you turn your back on God. And God still reminds you. And there are times when something's happened to you and you've thought immediately after it's up, well, God, thank you. And then you carry on. And you do it anyway. The world is overpowering and you're sucked into it. And you've got to be aware that the opportunity can be taken. We should never presume upon God's patience. He is a patient God. The scriptures tell us that. But he has also told us that he is going to come and judge this world. That he is going to come and he will judge us. And when that happens, the opportunity will have been taken away. And it's gone. Friends, don't let the pressures of this world take over in your heart and life. 
I've recently been watching a, a series of documentaries on uh, on Rome and uh, uh, the the Roman civilization, and and I know you might think, oh dear, that's a terribly boring subject, but you know it's not at all, because it tells you one thing that nothing's changed. <laughs> Our society is the same now as it was in uh, 48 AD, uh, sorry BC, 48 BC, when Pompey Magnus who was the richest man in Rome. He wasn't an emperor. He was under... Uh, Julius Caesar was not an emperor, of course. You have to remember that. He was a consul, and he was still beholden to the, um, to the Senate. But Pompey Magnus decided that he wanted to be the very richest man, and Pompey loved money, and it's all recorded in the accounts that, uh, that we have. And uh, he, he had no qualms in taking the last penny from a starving old lady. He would take it. And he didn't like spending his money either. He had bags of it stacked away everywhere. And eventually he went too far. And he was uh, taken to task for embezzlement and all the rest of it. And do you know what they devised as the punishment to bring his life to an end? He was sentenced to death. And they say that the punishment should fit the crime. They poured molten gold down his throat. How terrible. How terrible. Friends, don't let the wealth and the trappings of this world rob you from obeying the commandment of God to repent and turn to him. So what is the secret of joyful obedience? How can we have this? How am I able to be joyful in obedience? Well, we begin with the need to recognize that obedience is a family matter. Now, that might come out as a strange statement to make. What do I mean? Well, firstly, when we're obedient to God, we are serving our Heavenly Father. Now, that in itself makes it a family matter. Um, I do believe this, that most of us want to obey our parents. I believe that our children actually do want to. They know what the consequences are, perhaps, if they don't. But there is a desire, certainly amongst my children, to try and obey. It's true that when they can get away with it, they will get away, try and get away with it. But we also find that we are serving our brothers and sisters who are in Jesus. That makes it a family matter as well. Why? Because we've been born again. So everything is talking about the family of God. Uh, we have begun a new life in Jesus, and our baptismal service this morning spoke of this. Jesus has saved us by satisfying the righteousness of God, the righteous demands of God. And so we love God, and so we love God's children, our brothers and sisters. And how do we show this love? By keeping God's commandments joyfully. There was a woman uh, who dabbled with poetry, and she decided that some of her poems were good enough to take to the uh, local editor of the newspaper, and uh, she hoped that she could perhaps sell them to the editor. She'd worked hard on them. She thought she had a chance, and so she took them to the editor. And the editor uh, inquires and says to her, so what are your poems about? And she looks uh, with a, 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 a sense of satisfaction on her face, and she says, they're all about love. The editor sits back in his big seat, big chair in his office, and he says to her, okay, please read your favorite poem. 
So he settles back. He comments on the fact that the world could certainly do with some love these days. The woman clears her throat, <coughs> and she begins to read about roses and moonlit nights and heart-shaped chocolates and other soppy sentiment. The editor cries out, Stop! He says, I can't take any more. Now, I know there are some women here who are probably thinking it was a shame that, that my husband won't sort of like, you know, entertain a little bit of some of these things. But the editor had had as much as he could take as he listened to this woman going on. And he says, Madam, you've got no idea what true love is. You've got no idea at all. It's not roses. It's not moonlit. It's, it's not chocolate in the shape of hearts. It's about sitting up all night beside someone who's sick. It's about holding the hand of someone who's desperately lonely. It's about working extra hours so that the kids can have shoes. The world doesn't need your brand of poetical love. It needs good old-fashioned practical love. In the 20th century, uh, there was a preacher, D.L. Moody, and he often would say this. He said, every Bible should be bound in shoe leather because we show our love for God not by empty words, but by willing works, by obedience to him in all things. Friends, remember, we're not slaves obeying a master. We are children obeying a loving heavenly father but we have to obey. And here's the thing. When we're disobedient, when we sin, when we rebel against God, it becomes a family matter. We not only sin against our Heavenly Father, but we let each other down when we don't get involved in the things that are important in the church, when we just say, oh, so-and-so will be there, they'll do it. And we leave it to them. When we go off and we willfully sin, it hurts the whole family. When we lie about something, it hurts the whole family. When we're disobedient, it hurts the family. And this morning, those who have been baptized have shown their obedience to God. They have been blessed of God and they are a blessing to us and it was such a blessing to see so many people. And you know what? What took place this morning could be the means of seeing someone brought into the kingdom of God for the, for the first time they've considered the truths and the claims of Christ. And this morning, those six people strengthened our family. Because they showed us that what Jesus had done for them was serious. And it meant everything to them. This morning, those who have been baptized were a great blessing to us. It was a testimony. They have been blessed of God. And they're a blessing to us. But what about you? Are you obedient to your heavenly father 
Have you obeyed his commandment to repent and to turn to him? Have you obeyed his commandment to be baptized? To show that you truly belong to Jesus? Have you stood where Jesus stood for you? Have you identified yourself with your Savior? You know, one of the tests that our love is maturing is our personal attitude towards the Bible. Because in the Bible, we find God's will for our lives revealed to us. An unsaved person considers the Bible to be absolutely impossible to understand and to read. And that's because they can't. I've met people who've said to me, well, I've read the Bible many times, but it means absolutely nothing to me. I can't understand anything that's being said. Some politicians even talk about the fact that the Bible is hate speech. It should be burned. And it's possible that even in our local elections here, there have been those that have said that. 1 Corinthians 2.14 explains it very simply. It says, but the natural man does not uh, receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. If the Bible means nothing to you when you read it, you've got to ask yourself the question, am I saved? Do I know Jesus? Now a weak, immature Christian considers the demands of the Bible to be burdensome. Perhaps that's you this evening. Is it sheer drudgery to read the Word of God? Well, if this is the case, then it is quite likely that you are something like a small child who is learning to obey and keeps asking the question, why? Why do I have to do this, Daddy? Mummy, I think there's a better way of doing this. The three-year-old knows it all. But a Christian who experiences God's perfecting love finds him or herself enjoying the Word of God and truly loving it. You see, he's no longer reading the Bible as a textbook. She's no longer studying it as some sort of intellectual exercise. But dare I say it, we've changed and we're reading a love letter. I spoke on Friday very briefly during the course of the conference about uh, the, the concert we had. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. And out of 176 verses, every single one except two, that's verse 122 and verse 132, mention the word of God in one form or another as laws or precepts or commandments. And I want to close by encouraging you to remember that the psalm was a song. God's law has been written to music because it was a blessing. As we mature in our love for God, we have confidence and we're no longer afraid of the will of God. We also are honest towards others and we lose our fear of being rejected. And we have a new attitude towards the word of God because it is the expression of God's love and we enjoy obeying it. This evening, 
If you've not done so, turn to God, repent of your sin, and call to him for salvation. Why should you? Because you're commanded to by the God who created you and loves you. Now is the time. Now is the day.